Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for our minds. We're grateful for the advancement of our civilization that allows us to all have access to your word. Keep us faithful. In your son's name, amen. In this section of Luke, it comes out of a um, section where Jesus gets a little bit, you can see his jaw tightening up as he's looking at his disciples. And it introduces in Luke, early in Luke 12, a, a parable where the Lord relates the servants that are left behind when the master leaves and they start messing around, you know. Kind of like when you leave your 12-year-old babysitting your 10-year-old. It's, uh, don't expect anything intact when you get home. And he comes, the master comes back and judges the situation, but Christ makes the distinction that if you didn't know, you receive a light beating. If you didn't know, you receive a severe beating. Nobody likes those passages where Christ talks about beating. But right after that, right on the heels of that, is the verse, the next verse, everyone to whom much is given. It's here at the top of the sheet. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. Now, one of the things that sometimes happens, it happens politically, it happens uh, spiritually, it happens familially. Parents spend their lives giving things to their children. The, ch the child adds up in their mind how much make, to make sure that they're getting everything their, their majesty deserves. And it never crosses the child's mind how much they owe their parents. As a society, we give free things away to people all the time. And it does not cross the minds of the people that the thousands of dollars they have been given, the many, many, many free things they have been provided, that there's any debt. Because in their mind, It was a gift. They, did, they said, I didn't have to do anything for this. Right? Your parents tell the child, it's a gift. It's just Christmas. It's your birthday. I gave you this. No, you don't have to pay me for it. I gave it to you. And we love that. I mean, we, we love it in welfare. We love it in Christmas time. And we love it in Christianity. Because the salvation of God is a free gift. There's something wrong, uh, something very wrong. Because we know that when a child never has their relationship with their parent changed by the good gifts their parent gives them, when the citizen never has their view of the state improved by the thousands of dollars they are provided, you think that the gift 
is viewed by the recipient as only that which is due, just for having been themselves. Not because they paid anything for it, because I am the kid, I am the person, I am the, I am the poor person, I, I, I am the target of somebody else's largesse, and in some sort of personally um, uh, congratulatory way, they think that they deserve what has been given, and I shouldn't even have to thank. I would expect that in the, in the welfare world that there would be thank you cards coming from all over the country to the United States, but no, I don't think there are any thank you cards. It's because when grace happens and we're measuring it incorrectly, we, we turn it into a coddling, and you know what coddling does. You know that mother, we won't think that any of you were like this. We trust none of you were. That looking out for the, the child is just, the temperature drops a degree and suddenly another you know, onesie comes out and wraps the kid up and more and more the kid's dying. Mothers who coddle their children. We treat all grace, we treat all gift this way, and then the Lord says, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. So that's a hard thing to put into our thoughts, but I wanted to put that verse there. Now, because sometimes Jesus, I think Lewis points this out, Jesus talks the most about judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. Everybody thinks it's a different picture with Jesus because they haven't read Jesus. But this is one of those sections. It's not the woe to you scribes and Pharisees bit, but there are, in the course of this short text, goes, goes out of chapter 12 into chapter 13 a little bit of Luke, there are five questions, five paragraphs, subject matters, five questions. I just noticed it reading through. I didn't see the questions offhand, but then I realized, oh, there are five questions in here. And when you realize perhaps that you might not have been, you might not have been the um, um, treating the grace of God with the degree of reverence and responsiveness and thanksgiving that it deserves. When the Lord starts to ask questions, when the Lord says, hey, maybe you ought to think about this, or have you thought of that? It should get our attention. He says, right on the heels of this, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? That's your first question. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth, or give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Suddenly all of my Christmas cards are shot to ribbons. Because you get that little courier and Ives carriage with someone bugling a bugle over the snowy hills of central England because that's where Christmas happened. 
peace on earth. And usually some sticky stuff on the front of the card that someone threw sparkle at it. Glitter. Because that's Christmas. Peace on earth. And everybody likes to remind themselves. We're praying for bad circumstances in our country and conflict and polarization and violence on the upswing. And and everybody likes the message, peace on earth. And if anybody, if anybody is bringing peace on earth, if anybody was going to give peace on earth, it'd be Jesus Christ. And you ask, Jesus comes along and says, you know, it's been a rough day. You guys have been asking me questions I don't like, and I don't think you guys are viewing things the way I view them. And you probably think I came to give peace on earth, but I didn't. Rather, division. For henceforth, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against her mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You can work yourself in there if you'd like. I don't think he was limiting it to fathers and children and mothers and mothers-in-law. Hidden in that, what, what do you mean Jesus didn't come to bring peace on earth? You know that passage where he the angel says peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom he is pleased. Christ did not come because God was pleased with humanity but there were some people with whom he was pleased and to those goodwill and peace. But in his general ministry his ministry was planned to be divisive. Not with the divisions we would create, but the divisions natural to this. Now, what is the natural division? What was the first thing that divided the Christians when Christianity was preached? Divided the circumstance. Did not make for a good time. It was the fact that the gospel went out to the Gentiles. Ticked the Jews off. Now, you know what happens, what the difference is? A lot of people define themselves by their ethnicity. I'm a Scot, you're not. You're less of a human being. Okay? Scottish, not Scottish. Highly improved human being, mediocre. Because we're Scots. That's just the way things have been. Now, I know you probably have an ethnic group that you've thought about in some sort of way, or some of you have a Japanese background, some of you are Irish, maybe. Nations, ethnicities, family groups, us versus them. We were at a uh, party the other night, and uh, the Wilsons won. Let's say that. It was a split decision. Wilson's won both halves. We like that, right? We like that. We, we like the, almost, we, we're good, decent people. We like the good humor of, you know, joshing someone about their German or Polish or whatever, Russian ancestry. We, 
We like pretending to our superiority. Because down at the root of it, we all feel that that's the place that we really, we, we all have a, a, a co-think. The family thinks together, the tribe thinks together, the ethnic group thinks together, the nation thinks together, and Jesus is saying, you know, what I came to bring functions on a different axis. It functions on the decision of the individual to repent and bow the knee. And it doesn't matter where they're from, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter. It's did you bow the knee to Jesus Christ? And that's going to happen in the middle of a household. That's going to happen in the middle of a tribe. See, before the Jews, you had to join the Jewish nation and the Jewish religion and the Jewish ethnic group, and you had to be circumcised and you had to be in that family and follow those rules. That's what the old thing was, and Christianity was this awful moment when your child comes home and tells you they've joined the army and not the navy. We're a navy family. Graham joined the army. Or my daughter comes home from Portland, because it's a progressive nightmare, telling me, almost in tears, this is year, 10 years ago, that the church she went to sang praise songs. Because we don't, you know, this is, this is all souls, this is like Christianity, Jesus, St. Paul, and all souls. It's like that, but Christianity is to you individually and to you individually peace comes to you but not peace on earth because what happens to you one of the things Lewis deals with very well in Screwtape is about the person uh, and also in his four loves about how Christianity is a family, family ruination on wheels you know it's everyone resents the person who becomes a Christian because that means that they've got a secret knowledge outside the family or a deeper thing that makes them more special or their interests are different. They're not devoted in the height to the family, the tribe, the nation. You realize, you know, I'm a conservative, reasonably conservative politically. And... Uh, I know that Jesus died to save Republicans. But I look at it and sometimes realize, I have to say I would choose Jesus Christ over the Republican Party or conservative politics. I would have to choose. And sometimes Jesus says things that don't run well with conservative politics. Sometimes. And that's confusing to some people because they'd rather have their, their union in these things that exist like nation, tribe, and family. And Jesus Christ is something else. He did not come to bring peace, but division. Now when he told you that, he said, I, I'm ready to cast fire on earth, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That's such a key part. I mean, back in Luke 3, John the Baptist mentions this um, about Christ coming there on the left-hand side. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and the other part is fire. Now, this is the ministry of Jesus, prophesied by John the Baptist, announced by Jesus Christ. And I, and I need to, to not have what are, whatever the popular notion of things in Christian books or churches or, or teachers are, are trying to push us into, whatever mold of, of Christianity. We need to be listening to Jesus Christ and say, I've got to answer these questions. Because he is here to bring fire, and he's here to bring the Holy Spirit. Which side am I on? When he tosses the chaff, when, you know what a winnowing floor is, or a threshing floor, where they have the, the donkey or whatever walk across all the wheat, breaking up the uh, chaff from the kernels of wheat. And then you took a winnowing fork and you throw it into the air, and the wind lightly blows the chaff away, and the wheat falls back down to the threshing floor. So slowly but surely, all the detritus, all of the stuff you don't want in your loaf of bread, um, is gone. And that's, we're just deciding who we are. Are we the stuff God doesn't want in the loaf of bread? Are we those things, people baptized by Jesus Christ? Are we those that have been burned? And he says, and I, I want you to think of these things, maybe you could think of them individually, maybe you could think of them together, these five questions that occur in this short period. He also said to the multitude, verse 54, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The question is, why have you ignored the causes and effects, the signs and their meanings, for the present time? Now, he's talking to the first century. We're talking to, you know, 2019. You've got stuff happening. You know what cause and effect is like, and it seems like and I have actually probably said those very words. You look out over Pullman and there's this thundercloud over there. You know, I know that the weather comes from the west to the east and I expect a thunderstorm. It's going to rain. A shower is coming. I feel almost like Elijah at that moment. But our life inside of humanity is filled with signs and causes and effects. He calls them hypocrites. We like having sort of that prognosticatable, if that's a word, um, quality about inane things. Watching the signs. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little hot later today. You know how it is when you get old. Well, you don't yet, but you end up talking about the weather and insurance. And the Lord, is, he says, you know this stuff, but you didn't pay attention to any cause and effect in your life? 
so that when somebody else, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? You should say, yeah, I knew it all along. It was bound to happen. It was bound to happen. Have you made a study of the causes? Have you made a study of signs? I'm not talking about, we're not talking about end times here. We're talking about present times. Do you, do, are you surprised by what hits you? I knew various people who were absolutely flummoxed, flabbergasted, whatever word you want to come up with, by the, how someone's life turned out that they thought was a believer. And did you, uh, you, you probably had some notion, eh, I saw that one coming. You know, you don't step into it because it's not one, your business. Two, you don't have objective data that you could go out. You just knew, you, you saw the signs. You knew what caused this trouble. Don't be the kind of person, well first off, if you wanted to add something to, together for the sake of taking it home, that our Christianity is at war with standard unions that are the glue, the integral, the integral glue of society is the family, right? The common base unit. And Christianity is at war with that. It's great when your family is Christian, but it has no obligation to be. It saves individuals and it will cause disruption. Second, Life makes sense. You won't be surprised by the karma that lands on people you know or what happens to our nation. You won't be surprised. And, verse 57, why do you not judge for yourself what is right? Now that passage could be read a certain way. It could be read this way. Judge among yourselves whether this is right, what I'm about to say. Is he holding his argument up to a judgment? Or is he asking them to judge inside themselves what's right? Now when you judge inside yourself what's right, the authority's voice, you don't have a conscience for anyone else. Okay? You think you know that they're doing wrong because you think you could imagine what kind of narrative. You are not a good writer. You don't do a good job of this. Quit writing the stories of other people's guilt. Can you judge for yourselves what is right? The only place you really have to do that is in you. And because we don't make judgment of ourselves, we walk into the judgment clueless. It suddenly descends on us and we go, what? What did I do? We don't confess the things we need to, because what does he say? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, this is why I think it is a you about judging you, that the question is, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? If you have an attention to your own guilt, then you know when you're being dragged before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge 
and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out till you've paid the very last copper. I don't think he's talking about a particular crime. It's the path that you don't want to go down. You don't want this to become an actual case before the judge. If you judge for yourself what is right, you try to make amends en route while you have time. If you have noted that you have done evil, you get it right with God now. Because if you judged yourself truly, you would not be judged. We won't get out until we pay the last bet. If you want to go to the judgment, you've got to accept the penalty. I mean, what if the grace of God worked that way? If you didn't pay any attention to it until the last judgment, and he said, okay, I'm going to throw you into eternal torment for the rest of days. Oh, 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 oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. I heard there was a grace option. I could pick up on the grace option now. No, you can't. You mayn't. I don't think that's a word, is it? You may not. You may not go, oh, I changed my mind. I'll take the coupon. No, you missed the coupon. You didn't settle with your accuser before you got to the magistrate. If you don't, you won't get out until you've paid for it. These things, these questions, they change the shape of your life. Each one could be, you know, you could preach a lesson on each one of these paragraphs tied into other passages. But it's about how you think of you and how you think of your world. This is an individual Christianity and it is not here to make utopia. It will probably disrupt. Be ready for that. Be ready to understand how the world operates and predict what's going to happen so you're not caught flat-footed. You are not here to be surprised. You're here to be also the judge of yourself so that you will settle with God before you have to pay up to God. And the fourth, verse 1 of chapter 13, there were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now what happens here? The question is, there's two versions of it. Do you think the Galileans were worse sinners? Do you think they were worse offenders than the others in Jerusalem? That's what, see, when we look at the world, and just tie these things together, remember you're supposed to read the signs of the times, you know what's coming, you know it's about your 
salvation or not. You know it's about your sins or not. And we have every device ready. Ready to think about other people in a non-complimentary way. Because when we stress our families and our Scottishness, those of us that have it, it is easy to measure the world that way as they're just not quite, well, they're Irish for heaven's sake. Can the Irish go to heaven? I don't know. Maybe Jesus loves them. We have ways of dodging what this is really about. It's not about your family. It's about you. It's not about you being coddled by God's goodness to you. It's about you having much required of you. This is what these questions are understandings of what is required. I need to accept the disruption the gospel brings. I need to know how to interpret what goes on in this world by what God is going to do and how that works, how man sins. I know how to think of my own sin, so I know how to get what confessed that needs to be confessed. And I don't, when I see calamity in the world, we just saw these two shootings. People always like to think that it is payout for their crimes against God, the people who died, or a sickness or a, a, a plague going through a certain... Back when AIDS came on, Christians were hard-pressed to go, well, maybe it is God's judgment. I don't know if it is. But the Lord says to these people, he says, you know, these calamities happen. Do you think they were worse sinners than you? Two examples. Do you think they were worse offenders? The answer is no, they were not. Man. Man is wicked. And you are. And are, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When we answer these questions, now these were not questions to Christians in a Christian church. These were questions to the Jews who were listening to the Christ. Um, and you can apply them to whatever degree. You want to have the kind of mind that echoes Jesus Christ's mind, his hope. He wants the Holy Spirit and fire. He is constrained until it is accomplished. And he wants to shove these questions at them in sequence. This is happening in one circumstance. And we sometimes don't realize how much we will be matured as a Christian when we just shift the vantage point, the axis on which we look. And we realize that not only do I have to confess my sin or my lie or whatever, that I learn that what I have to get right before I get to the magistrate. I, I, when I learn what I need to, how I need to confess and how deep that has to be, when I learn how my mind will get my excuses ready or view others as just more sinful, that if, if, if uh, who are we going to pick on? Uh, if people in Pakistan are driving off 
cliffs and buses and bad things are happening. If I could feel that they just kind of deserve that, and it's more wicked. It brings balance to my world. I get to feel more secure in my Western uh, Judeo-Christian circumstance. I begin to not view my own sin. And the Lord says, you know, these Galileans, these people in Salome, no, they weren't. You're just as bad. Everyone deserves this. Repent. Now, when he gets to the end here, uh, verse 6 there of chapter 13, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Here's a question for you. Why should it use up the ground? Given that we're looking at all these questions as directions for us, things from the Lord that would keep us from presuming too much or think that God's grace is there to coddle you and really understand that you're really an introvert and you couldn't be asked to love people. Don't you understand I'm introverted? I'm sorry. That's called being not a Christian. You say, but I am a Christian. Well, then start loving people. We have ways of just making these assumptions about what we get in the grace of God. We have written many checks for God and... Uh, God is, I have a different view of this. I have requirements that my goodness to you would have made in somebody who appreciated the gift. And I've come looking for fruit on this tree for three years. He has the opinion of this tree is it's using up space. I was thinking about a few weeks ago is meditating on the nature of patience. And uh, patience is a virtue. And we'd like to think, because we're ready to write big checks for God's goodness to us, you know, God is just... Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Great passage to quote, right? People do. But then they also don't quote Shall we therefore sin that grace may abound? By no means. We don't have the right view of the grace that it abounds more than the sin. We don't have the right view of the patience of God because we think because patience is good, infinite patience is better. Right? If infinite patience is better, why would God ever judge the earth? Well, guess what? If infinite patience is God's, there is no judgment because he has to decide to quit being patient at some point. I'm done. Three years, I was waiting for fruit. Got nothing. Cut it down. And then the vine dresser, and he answered him, let it alone, sir. This year also, one more year, I will dig about it and put on manure bury you in poo, basically. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Because even the person who has patience 
The owner had patience for three years. That was done. The vine dresser said, I could do a little bit more. I'll be a little patient a little longer. But I have the same motto. At the end of the year, I'm done. Because if it doesn't bear fruit, we're done. Because without, if patience is infinite, there is no judgment, there is no morality. Just if you choose to try to do a good thing every once in a while, no. He expects you to live in accordance with the faith and the grace that was given you. Not to pay for it, because you can't. This gift cost too much. But the response to the gift, how could you view it? People who don't view the grace of God correctly. Um, say I had some money. Say I had a lot of money. Say I had billions. After church, everybody knew I had billions. Evan just wasn't taking people out to McDonald's all the time. But after church, I pulled you aside and said, you know, I really felt called to give you a billion dollars. A billion dollars. You know how much a billion dollars is? A thousand million. Yeah. Just work that in. Play with that a little bit. Savor it. Aspirate it to the back of your mouth. That's a lot of money. I'm set. A billion dollars. My gosh, heaven. Oh, I got it. No problem. I like you. Here's a billion. What can I do? Well, you can't pay me, right? I, how much for the billion dollars? Oh, a billion dollars. Because that's what the billion dollars is worth, right? You found it worth a billion dollars, and so if you were to pay me for the billion dollars, you'd have to pay a billion dollars to get it. But I'm saying, no, it's a gift. Really, honest. It's going to change your notion of me, isn't it? You're going to think I, you know, Evan... He's just the greatest. I just can't believe that guy. I cannot, man, if there's any, anything ever he would ever want, need, whatever, it's my time is his. I'm going to give myself on every front. No, not because it's ever. I could live every second of my life for him, and it wouldn't be worth a billion dollars. I've got the billion. I don't have to pay him. But I have to respond, right? I have to respond. And those of us who don't, who decide to design a Christianity along the lines of whatever your church is, instead of what our Lord said, end up not producing the fruit. And I thought of the passage to end on out of Romans 2 here on the left hand side therefore you have no excuse O man whoever you are when you judge another for in passing judgment upon him you condemn yourself because you the judge are doing the very same things we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things do you suppose O man that when you judge those who do such things yet do them yourself you will escape the judgment of God or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
That's the phrase that I thought of when I turned to that passage. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So it's no longer a gift from grandma who coddles her grandchildren. It no longer has no relationship to your service to the kingdom of heaven. You can't pay for it. But this is the right response. is to lead you to repentance. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Realize that the goodness of God to you has a certain shape. It, you can see it in your world. You can see the causes. You can see the signs. You can see it's about you and not your tribe. You and not your family. It's whether or not you stand up having bowed the knee to serve your God. And you've got to watch out for all the things that keep you from thinking of your own sin to confess. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. <coughs> we are here to bear fruit for God. What is it? Have you done it? Otherwise, you've got to, if you think you can just go collect more grace from the welfare office in heaven and not even think of writing a thank you note. I was talking to somebody the other night about why we sing as Christians. Some things you can't express other than by some brilliant poet writing you something to express the greatness of God's goodness to you because you can't even write a good enough thank you note to God. But your life can be his. If you ask the right questions, you know where you're going, you know what you're about, you know what you've got to do to serve him start to bear fruit. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. In your son's name, amen.